0: Portland Tim Beers how you doing buddy I'm doing fantastic I'm drinking a beer doing some easy listening relaxing after a wonderful Timbers win against Houston
1: we uh, got to reminisce too
0: why yes we did
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'm uh, going back posting some of our oldies but goodies and uh played you a little of I believe uh, episode 1.
0: You, you know, it's I think what we need to do and this is going to take a <laughs> lot of time, a lot of a uh, lot of effort, but I think we just need to go back and take all the best sound clips of all the like first season and jam them together and put them out there as the, the best <laughs> of. <laughs> well,
1: we made a lot of mistakes that first season. But we they did, were,
0: but boy, they were funny as hell.
1: Podcast gold, baby.
0: Absolutely hilarious.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, tonight it's what eleven fifteen. It's you and I alone in the game room. Hey, stop it. A couple high lifes.
0: <laughs> no. <laughs> um. Yeah. Just two Back. wins in a week.
1: Two wins in a week. Gotta love it. And uh, we got a. I think an interview with the guard. We're gonna. Uh, pop on this bad boy yes we do so we'll uh listen to that and then i think we'll do a little bit on sand skiing
0: because you've been doing some research oh yeah yeah we gotta get that shit going i think we're 90 percent in 90 i'm like 99
1: yeah.
0: i've already got wax ordered there's no there's no turning back and did you get miyagi no wax on no no wax i got on. i got his protege oh F- fred <laughs> Fred. <laughs> <laughs> Does
1: that know who it is? No, it's Daniel. Oh, Daniel. Yeah. Daniel song Daniel Sahn. Waxhaw? Waxhaw. What's Daniel Son's son's name? Actually, have you
0: seen that? The Cobra Dude, Kai? Dude, I got... No, I haven't. You haven't? No. It can't be that good.
1: That's a whole episode that we need to do.
0: Oh, boy. How do you not... You have not seen Cobra Kai yet? No. No.
1: Oh, you got to see it. It's freaking fantastic. We're watching an episode when we
0: leave this. Really? Yes. No, I'm going home and going to bed. No,
1: it's fantastic, No, nope. Literally Debbie's, fantastic. Debbie's going
0: to want you to go to bed. Uh, probably not. No, no, she is. Well, let's talk a little bit about this Timbers <laughs> game. <laughs> yeah. Which one? Wednesdays or this one? And we can talk about either or. I think they were both fantastic. This one's in my mind. Both fantastic. So,
1: uh, LA Galaxy... Uh Portland Timbers US Open Cup. Uh we win. Four nil. Four nil. Absolutely wonderful game to watch. Yep. Believe you made a comment. That we're gonna be we're gonna need a bigger log after that game. Yeah, hell yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um I believe we have a toothpick left uh after tonight's game.
0: You know, you know your log's too short when all the scarves that Timber Joey puts on them covers the entire log, and you have to move them to cut a log slice. I
1: know my log's too short when I look uh, in a uh, urinal trough, and I look boy, left, wait. I look right.
0: <laughs> wow. No? It just went there.
1: <laughs> and there's no tim- Timber Jarmy. Timber's no. Jarmy? Timber...
0: Timber's Jarmy or Jim yeah, to yeah, hold it up for nothing.
1: you? nothing. Yeah, not at all. Why would he hold it up? That's weird. He just made it weird. It wasn't weird before.
0: No, it was. It was <laughs> way weird.
1: <laughs> I look left, I look right. Just like crossing the street.
0: Yeah, and crossing streams. Yeah. No, not Woo. crossing
1: streams. Hey, you know what? The uh, We talked about this. Because what? the bathrooms at the Providence
0: Park are a <laughs> shit show. Yeah. And they said they remodeled them. I want to know which ones they remodeled. I'm calling bullshit cuz <laughs> I'm not seeing any change in the ones that i've frequented so they put these stalls in and i believe
1: i'm taking full credit for the stalls several years ago on this <laughs> podcast yeah but now it's
0: ineffective
1: and nobody uses the freaking stalls right like they just still go
0: two in the stalls you can first go i gotta i gotta got correct you right there yeah it's it's not a stall it's a trough oh troughs sorry, yeah. stalls yeah, yeah so yeah, if yeah, you yeah. got stalls in there yeah you don't want more than one person in a stall because there's some heavy business going on in those really yeah yeah, usually. I always go doubles or triples in the stalls. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's why it doesn't work right. That's exactly <laughs> why it's not working. When I'm
1: standing in the stall and I look left and I look right.
0: <laughs> you should see walls, not other people.
1: That explains what's going on. Yeah, it yeah. does.
0: No, the troughs.
1: Yeah, those damn yeah, troughs. troughs. You can fit more than two people in the troughs. You,
0: yeah, you could fit a lot of guys in a trough. And guys are just being sissies and not getting their business done yeah and backing shit up dude just go in and pee for fuck's sake and make a
1: friend i mean just
0: you don't even have to do that just pee no get the hell out i like to talk to people when i'm peeing oh boy (laughs) no no you mean you can't talk to anybody that is so not (laughs) the time to make a make small talk and conversation. I'm
1: touching shoulders with him. Yeah. I might as well no, like... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, what are you doing? How's your log? Does Timber uh, Joey put scarves <laughs> on your log? No? Moving on. It's Pride
0: Week. No, yeah, moving on. <laughs> they made a rainbow scarf. Yeah, they did. How would you think of that TIFO? Yeah, you know, I'm tired of the politics. Um... We try not to do it on the show, so keep it the fuck out of our sports. (laughs) Uh, That's all I'm going to say on that. I'm
1: just pitching the softballs tonight, baby.
0: And I'm hitting for the fence.
1: (laughs) So, uh, we play Houston. So, yeah, anyways, we kicked the shit out of L.A. They brought in a JV squad. We brought in our varsity squad. And we spanked them. And we spanked them, as we should have. Yeah. Now, LAFC's up next. In LAFC, I believe, as our buddy Scott said, um, the league and everybody is trying to set on purpose LAFC up for the treble. Really? Yes. So.
0: Well, so we just need to fuck that up for them.
1: Well, they're putting this thing at home, and they're doing all sorts of shit so
0: yeah but we could fuck that up we could hopefully
1: i mean we got brian
0: fucking fernandez
1: i'm not getting over my skis at this point i love the guy i think he's fantastic i owe a lot of apologies to the guy you do Um, especially after what we witnessed tonight (laughs) i owe a lot of apologies
0: and so does tim tim you need to knock your shit off yeah timmy yeah um so jason what did we witness tonight with brian fernandez When he came off the field. So Brian had an epic game. He comes off the field. I'm
1: watching the guy. He comes and gives Gio a big hug. Gives every assistant coach a hug. Gives every single player sitting on the bench a hug and a high five then goes down to the training staff at the end of the bench gives them a hug and then goes behind the bench and like gives all the support staff and the other trainers hugs and high fives
0: every single one before he went and sat down 30 plus people dude that's a class act kids yeah
1: before he sat down pulled off his shin guards did the whole whole thing so classy dude and absolutely a fiery competitor on the field so. Guy is
0: definitely making the money we're paying him. Yeah. There's no question. Yeah,
1: not at all. I mean, I, he's as
0: Cameron would say, he's lit. He's lit. Yeah,
1: he's lit. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah,
0: there you go. So, so what do you think about the Ebo shift?
1: Um, I'm okay with it. I think Ebo's showing. I'm still not. I'm still not a big Ebo guy. Um, but I think he's playing better where he's at, but I'm not so sure that if we were to put a Spria or some of those other guys up there, I think the formation change is fantastic. And we talked about this several podcasts ago about being able to put multiple people up at the top and almost playing a four through three. Um, and I think from a holding set, I mean, having two guys up top is just causing massive disruption at this point.
0: It is, and I think I think Ibo is more comfortable in that support role than he is in the star role. Uh, he looks smoother. He looks more comfortable on the ball. He looks more patient. Um, I, I just think it's a way better fit for him. Yeah, it
1: looks way better, and he seems more comfortable. He seems more confident. Um, I, I mean, that th-
0: goal tonight that he scored was gorgeous.
1: I don't think he's a guy that wants everything running through him. I don't think he is either. I think Fernandez is that guy. He's like, give me the ball. Let's go. Yep. That's another Cameron quote, by the way. Let's go. Let's go. I don't even know. Where does that come from? I have no idea. Yeah, I got it. No idea. So, um, but then there's like Zambrano and Lorea tonight. Absolutely Rookie's playing on T2, I guess yeah. they're a couple years into the league. but
0: The suburban su- cast yep. is beautiful right now.
1: Holy shit, these kids came on. They should be overwhelmed with what was going on. <laughs> Big full stadium, their first game with the T1 squad. And they had it dialed in. Dude, they played out of their minds. So, yeah, it made it look great. So, Maria looks good. I know that he's taken a lot of heat from some of the fans. I think the guy's okay. I mean, he makes some boneheaded stuff. But think about who he replaced. Hmm. Powell. Powell, yeah. Right. He doesn't make half the boneheaded no. shitty plays that Powell made. He doesn't. So he's a competitor. He's not super fast. and He doesn't fire the big crosses in like Powell did. But, man,
0: that guys he works. Well, he works his butt off. But at the same time, I mean, when you look at the system that they're employing, they're, they're employing him high, so they've automatically adjusted for him not being able to get back. Right. Uh, and we're seeing that now. It, it's actually come to fruition where those holes are being plugged up, uh, which is good to see. Now, I, I think they will be tested uh, pretty hardcore when they go up against LAFC. But
1: Yeah, it's always interesting, uh, the the cup and who's... Who's going to put who in, and are going to take the cup serious? But Portland certainly was taking it serious. Yeah, they definitely were. LaFC played San Jose, and both those teams took it serious. Yes. Um, And LaFC barely won it at the end, so it'll be interesting to see what happens. I think San Jose is actually legit. Um, I think this new coach just kind of gave them a new attitude. And I think they're going to be dangerous towards the end. I think they're going to be kind of like that hanging in the bottom middle of the table. But I think they're dangerous, man. And well, we are going to play them a couple more times.
0: Yeah, and it doesn't bode well for us. No. I mean, the whole, when you look at the whole West Coast side right now, it's pretty nasty. Um there's a lot of legit stuff going on I th- I think the the Western conference is gonna take back the toughest conference from the Eastern conference you think so I think they will uh, it may not be this year but I think next year or, or I think next year they'll take it back uh, yeah, just because you're, you're starting to see the quality of play and and the crap that they're starting to put together I mean it's crazy
2: hmm
1: yeah it's interesting the uh that whole how the league's kind of changing up again. I mean the team is still shitty though Colorado
0: <laughs>
1: poor bastard and Jesus <laughs> they just spend money like crazy and nobody shows up and they still suck so oh, it's because it
0: snows all the time on them.
1: How about the u s open cup dude
0: Ooh, all the upsets yeah, dude, what's with this New Mexico team? I gotta say they looked pretty damn legit. <laughs> I have no idea. Um, yeah, it's it's nuts when you've got... Sp- I wouldn't call them amateur because they're not amateur. Um, but semi-pro teams just lighten up pro teams. Uh, d- yeah, you know, I get that some of these pro teams aren't taking it serious, so they've got a lot of their, their lower players in trying to get them playing time and everything. But, dude, when you're getting smoked by these guys you need to wake up yeah absolutely the whole thing
1: looked absolutely ridiculous um cincinnati faced it with st louis as well st louis won it in what the 94th minute in stoppage time 94th of stoppage yeah and so still we hold the record for shittiest uh u.s open cup losses we don't want to go there yeah, no, I'll go there. I was there. <laughs> Cal FC, you dirty bastards. Eric went all to fuck you. So,
2: whoop, whoop.
1: Yeah. No, it's, uh, I mean, US, U.S. Open Cup is interesting. So it's always got something going on and some sort of upset of brewing And, of course, Little Brother's looking to upset Big Brother. And well,
0: and it's such a strange animal because you've got, I mean, as a coach, you've got to really focus on... Where do I want to put my my energy right now? Do I want to put it in regular season? Or do I want to put it in the cup? Do I want to split it? What do I want to do here? Right. Um, so, I mean, I don't envy the coaches on those decisions at all. But you, you got to, when you're a pro team, you got to take it. You can't be losing to these lower class teams. Yep. Um, just because it, that that right there tells me that the, the guys that you put out there shouldn't be on first team and to begin with. Um, and maybe that's what you're looking for. Maybe you're looking to prove should they be on first team or not. So again, that uh, that's the coach's decisions, not mine.
1: Yep. Well, so we play Montreal on Wednesday and uh, we'll have to see how that goes. There's a lot of minutes going on for some of these guys. Um and some yellow card accumulation that's going to start affecting us. I think down the yes, road. Yes, they can. So Blanco was out on yellow card, uh, on his yellow card penalty. Uh, this game, right? So he should right. be back. Yeah. Um, but man, Chara picked up a yellow. Valeri picked up a yellow. Uh, there's a bunch of yellows in this game, and I
0: just don't understand half of them. Well. Um, there, there was some that may have been legit, but others I'm like, how the hell do you pick up a yellow card when you're half a field across from the player that went down? Yeah,
1: it makes little sense. I get,
0: I don't total, I just don't get it.
1: So well, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see how this thing shakes out. So I believe the next home game is against Dallas coming up. Uh, what after? What next weekend? I think I it's I the twenty eighth. Twenty eighth. There you go. Yeah. So, that'll be fun. A lot of 8 o'clock, 8 p.m. games. Yes, there are. Those are late, dude. They are late. But it's sure pretty out.
3: It
0: is.
1: And then when it's hot. And it cools off. Yes, exactly. It
0: really cools off for the players. I'm wondering, I'm, I'm almost wondering if they did that because of the new stadium design. Um, but who knows? Yeah. What it's above you, my pay grade. What do you think of the beer selection? At At the stadium? Yeah. It needs work they have any sour beers? I haven't seen any. There's no sour beers? Um, I guess ciders, I guess. Not but. that I would look for a sour beer, but I didn't see any sours. I would look for a sour beer. Uh, I don't think I would. Really? Not in the
1: heat. No. Sour beer, especially if Degard, if Degard was there? Possibly. Yeah, Very possibly. No, I would drink yeah, Degard beer yeah, there. Yeah.
0: Um, they got Miller, though.
1: Well, yeah, we had a little High Life. <laughs> Kids, I'm telling you. And this is where I part ways with some of my brew friends here.
0: There's uh, nothing
1: better than a Miller High Life.
0: <laughs> well, and the sad thing is we did a Miller High Life comparison to a German Pilsner, and I chose the Miller High Life. Yeah. <laughs> dude is legit. And it was De- Debbie did too. Way more refreshing, way tastier. Um I feel like a sellout, but you know what? One in Rome? It tasted better. I'm sorry. Do the Romans.
1: That's right. All right, well, let's take a quick break. We'll come back, talk a little bit about Degard, and uh, shake that up. Uh, well, hey, wait. What are you drinking, by
0: the way? What were you drinking? I have no idea. It's all gone.
1: I think that was the uh, the clone
0: of the Anderson Summer Solstice Ale. It's all gone. Um, but it was flat. It was flat, and it's still gone. Yeah. So it was a tasty beer. It just didn't have the carbonation that we were looking for. Nope. I mentioned. we don't need a ton of... Ton but it was mis- mis- bottled. Yes. It was bottled. So uh, mm-hmm. I'm not sure what happened there. All
1: right. Well, we'll come back and... Uh talk a little bit about Degard, talk about our trip to Tillamook to see Degard, and uh, play the interview. So, with that, we'll be back shortly. All right, Tim Beers, we're back. What are you drinking?
0: Nothing. Well, not now. I got an empty glass. There you go. Oh, boy. It looks way too dark for drinking <laughs> in the summertime. What the fuck? That's not dark. This
1: is a... No, uh, that's dark. This is a dark ale.
0: Yeah, it's motor oil colored. It's dark, and smell it. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> that's at least a 12% beer. No. No, it is.
1: Um, one
0: pint. Um, 10%. Oh, Jesus. I was off by two. It may be more. Get your glasses on, kids. Yeah, it's ten percent. Wowzers!
1: This is a uh, super nebula by Block Fifteen. Imperial Stout, matured in bourbon barrels and conditioned in on cocoa nibs.
0: I just got to ask why. Why they put it on cocoa nibs? No, why did you pour this? <laughs> oh. I was gonna say I don't know about the cocoa nibs, but uh... <laughs> shit. <laughs> I'm rummaging through my my uh, <laughs> frigging refrigerator here, but and I rummaged. Uh... No. huh? This looks interesting. It's yeah. not winter time, but what the? We'll try it anyway.
1: Well, they said each year we mature Super Nebula, an imperial version of the Nebula Stout oh, in oh unique my... bourbon <laughs> barrels, yeah. followed by conditioning on cocoa nibs. <laughs>
0: <laughs> hey. You need a match? Yeah, I got to light the fumes that are coming off my breath. Holy shit. <laughs> what do you taste? A lot of alcohol. Any cocoa? Yeah, on the backside.
1: That's, that's um, I'm getting a coffee
0: said. taste on the backside, too. Um... Vanilla? No, <laughs> not yet. I mean, I gotta, I gotta readjust my palate from going from, you know, <laughs> a flat summer, flat summer ale to uh, high octane
1: jet fuel. <laughs> well, so we uh, had the opportunity to head down to Tillamook. We uh, hit Pelican, which we had uh, in the last episode, Jesus. and uh, <laughs> we might need to go to Block 15 next.
0: You know, the funny thing is, is, is if we ever start a YouTube channel, yeah. People are just going to fall out of their chairs fucking laughing at the reactions of our taste to these beers. <laughs> Brutal. So we uh, hit DeGuard
1: Brewing, and that's actually the reason that uh, brought us down to Tillamook was to go visit yeah. those guys. So, Yeah. Uh, we had some fringe benefits with uh, Pelican, and that worked out magically. It did. Those guys treated again, treated us again awesomely. You know, we got
0: treated really well at DeGuard, though, too. But the guard was fantastic. So, um, are you a sour beer guy? I'm not a sour beer guy at all. But um, we had an anniversary ale. We had the anniversary ale there, and it's shocking because it it tasted more like, and I think we might have even brought this up just a just a touch on the last podcast, but it tasted more like a champagne than it did a beer yeah i agree um amazing amazing uh things that they're doing there to guard and they're not rushing their product at all i mean it's two to three years that you would see on the aging process of a beer um so when you look at sours i mean sours when I started looking at sours, I'm like, gee, many Christmas. How do you develop a business plan around a sour? Because it takes so long for those to develop and mature. And then you've got to keep those coming on tap all the time. Yeah. Um, DeGuard seems to have it dialed in. Um, a huge, huge amount of the the space that we got to look at is dedicated to the fermentation and... What would you call it just the aging of the beer? Yeah, uh, beautiful facility, it's actually gorgeous. I love it, I loved the aesthetics of it. Uh, their layout's great, everything's just beautiful.
1: So, what's cool about these guys is they're one of only a few breweries that I know of in the United States that really relies on uh, spontaneous fermentation. Um, in essence, really, you uh, take your wort, take your boiled wort. And you put it into a cool ship, which is a big open <laughs> yeah. vat, and you allow the yeast um, from the air to kind of blow over the top, and f- for lack of a better term, infect or inoculate the wort, and then do its thing. I mean, it just starts fermenting kind of naturally.
0: Well, and the beauty of Degard is, is they did a bunch of, of research on airflow and everything else in the design of their building. So they've got vents in one side of the building and then fans at the other side. And they can control the flow of air that goes over the top of the wart or over the cool ship um, to really dial in that inoculation that they're looking for, which I thought was pretty impressive. So then they take, uh, once it's
1: fermented to the level that they want, they take it and barrel age it and add fruit. They do all sorts of stuff to it. Um, but they pull the beer when they're good and ready to pull the beer, and they do a lot of blending. Most of their stuff is blended, right? Um, but they're they're coming up with the best beer they think is possible every single time, and they nail it, man. I mean, they've got some funky combinations, but each of them that we had was like, whoa, this is crazy. Yeah, and it's good. It was good. Yeah, black truffles, white truffles. I mean, all I mean, sorts of crazy stuff.
0: Stuff you wouldn't even think of when when you're thinking of brewing beer. And these guys have done it, and they're doing it, I'd like to, for a better lack of terms, they're doing it on the wild side. Yeah, so... Uh, and they've got it dialed in really, really well. So if you get a, uh, if you
1: get a chance to go check these guys out, uh, 114th Ivy Avenue in Tillamook, um, beautiful, beautiful building. Uh, and Gary talked about it where it's a little bit of a uh, kind of a brew space where you can go in and sample some beers, some, like a tap space. And then the rest is actually production side. And it's pretty cool. So, all right. Well, let's uh, give a listen to the interview here. And then we will regroup, uh, talk a little bit about Degard more, and then move into Sand skiing. Ooh, ooh. Hey, this is uh, Jason from the Tim Beers. We're here at uh, Degard Brewing, and Gary and I uh, have long time wanted to check out uh, kind of the scene in Tillamook, and so contacted DeGuard, and they were kind enough to have us out, so I appreciate uh, you inviting us out. I'll let you introduce yourself and the brewery and where it's located. Tell us about the brewery.
3: Yeah, well, I appreciate the interest. Thank you for taking the time to come and visit us. Absolutely. Uh, So we're at Degard Brewing, located at 114 Ivy Avenue in Tillamook, Oregon. Uh, kind of between the, the two different mountain ranges and a couple miles from the coast. Um, I'm Trevor Rogers, the head brewer, co-owner, uh, head blender. Uh, my wife, Lindsay, and I founded this company back in 2012 and had our first beer available in 2013. Uh, we're a brewery focused uh, entirely on spontaneous fermentation and fermentation and aging in oak barrels. Uh, cool. So yeah, that's
1: totally why we're interested. So it, um we're not big sour guys, but the more our palate kinda changes. Yeah, <laughs> the more our palate changes. And really, um, as the Portland scene, the Oregon scene starts to move towards sours, right, um, you're kind of forced to try and experiment and do this type of thing. And so I'm noticing, I mean, there's certain styles that I gravitate to, but how'd you guys pick spontaneous fermentation? I mean, what, what drew you to that style early on?
3: Well, I think both of us were passionate about wine and uh, to some extent had uh, jobs in the industry uh, before we ever fell in love with beer itself. And our favorite wines always have a very unique uh, sense of place. Um, The best wines, I think, can't be made the same anywhere else. The, The grapes, the environment all play a hand in that. And spontaneous fermentation, to a similar degree, offers that mm-hmm. um, where you're making your beer, the balance of yeast and bacteria and the strains in any individual location will lead to something that is uniquely different than if you moved it 10, 20, 30 miles away even. Right. Absolutely. So again, kind of an onus back to some of the Trappist
1: type brewing, right? So Belgians really known for some of their spontaneous brewing, some of those similar
3: type flavors and styles. How does it differ from like Belgian brewing? Yeah. Um, you know, we draw our biggest inspiration from Belgian lambic producers, right. um, we have to cater our recipes, uh, maturation, timelines, and process to suit our native yeast and bacteria. So our recipes are going to be slightly different. Our processes are going to be slightly different. Okay. But at the same time, uh, we owe the greatest debt to to those producers for maintaining that tradition and providing the inspiration for how we make our beer. Cool. Excellent. So are you sourcing
1: local ingredients here? Tell us a little bit about your ingredients, what you use. We were out at Tiny Wolf uh, yesterday and hit, have hit some others where... They're wolves and people which are very specific about trying to source from the M Hill County and the beers they make kind of reflect that area. Are you guys doing something similar? What's your process?
3: Yeah, very similar. Um, I think we'd be doing ourselves a disservice, uh, you know, claiming to be a local brewery and excluding totally. local yeah. ingredients. Uh, so we work with uh, as local farms as we possibly can. Uh, it turns out that we're really good at growing cows in Tillamook County, <laughs> uh, making cheese, uh, but a lot of agricultural crops just don't flourish in this area. Right. Um, So if we're working with fruit, then that's going to be coming from uh, the valley, typically about an hour and a half away from here. Uh, So still reasonably local, uh, particularly by brewing standards. Uh, The same way the grain that we use is uh, almost exclusively grown within three hours and malted within three hours of our brewery. Really? Okay. Yeah. Um, We're perpetually looking for different ingredients kind of native to our um, area or region that we can can work with, Uh, all of our hops at this point are coming from Crosby Hop Farms in Oregon. Mm. Um, we age the majority of those for most of our recipes in-house, uh, so three to four-year-aged uh, wow. Cascade and Willamette, uh, grown pretty darn close as well. Um,
1: yeah. Cool. And then the wine barrels I'm taking, similar from the vineyards, I mean, you're
3: you're bringing a lot of the wine-type stuff that you've used. Sure. And, you know, we do have to make a bit of an exception there. Uh, unfortunately, none of us here are the biggest fan of American oak, uh, right. the, the character that provides for either wine or more particularly our our beer. So most of those are made from French oak um, and imported uh, On that account. We source as much as we possibly can uh, from local wineries, but we do occasionally bring in uh, some call them character barrels like if we wanted a sherry barrel Mm -hmm. uh which i think is beautiful with our beer that has to come from europe there's just not sherry production obviously in the u.s uh, or anything really equivalent to it Uh, so let's talk a little bit about oak barrels for some of the
1: listeners not that may not know i mean what is the differences in in basics of american oak versus french oak it's spiciness right so yeah spice and like spiciness
3: and i think intensity has some some aspect there um I would say, like, the best way to tell the difference is to get two different Napa Valley Cabernets. Um, there are producers that use 100% new French oak and producers that use 100% new American oak. Right. Um, and that difference is really apparent when you uh, sit down with a glass of each. Um, the, the intensity, the spice characteristic for American oak is something that uh, I think is too heavy-handed for a beer. Hmm. Typically, we want fairly neutral barrels that have been used uh, already by wineries or distilleries uh, so that the oak contribution is going to be lessened somewhat. But the intensity of our beer is less than a big red wine, say. Uh, so even with a diminished oak contribution, it can still be too much or uh, if it's a type of oak that we don't like, uh, way too
1: much. Right, right. So are you are you doing any blending? Are most of your beers a blend-type
3: process? Yeah, absolutely. Um, everything we do, uh, with, with very few exceptions, is a blend. Okay. Uh, the majority of our beers are... Um, Going to be an average of about two years of age in oak. Um, I say average of two years of age because there might be a one-year-old component, there might be a three-year-old component, Mm. um, or in the case of our anniversary beer, it's a blend of one, two, three, four, and five-year-old barrels uh, with an average age of little north of three years. Uh, We find that very rarely, just as in wine, a single vessel gives you the best outcome. Right, Um, you kind of have to blend to taste and character and intensity. Wow, fantastic. So how'd you get into the brew business? So you talked a little bit
1: about your love for wine early on. Were you a home brewer? I mean, what exactly happened there to draw you
3: into the beer industry? Uh, It was a home brewer, but the transition to love for beer came from a a friend of mine who we used to uh, spat back and forth. He said, you know, beer is more complex, has more possibilities, is better than wine. And uh, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to curse on this, but... (laughs) No, totally can't. I threw some invectives back at him. Yeah, uh, no, absolutely. uh, and eventually, he uh, shared some beers with me. Like, well, well, fuck. You, yeah. you're right. Yeah, <laughs> there are a lot of possibilities here, and I'm not saying that it's better than wine, more complex than wine, or there is a broader range of possibilities. But certainly, uh, they have equal uh, range. Right. Absolutely, they do. Um, it's interesting
1: because we live in a very uh, wine-rich culture you know, especially in the valley. Sure. I mean, there's a ton of wineries and things going on that way. Um, And then same thing for beer, but it's interesting the blend as I look at some of the farmhouse stuff, the blend between beer and wine being that farmhouse style and kind of the experimentation with oaks and blending and things like that. So it's crazy.
3: Sure, and we found um, a lot of times you'll have a couple or a group of people come in here and only half of them love beer Uh, and the other half are wine drinkers. And because of the type of beer we make, it's not uncommon to find the wine drinker be the one that is most receptive to what we're making. Well, the beer drinker says, I'm going to have a guest tap, um, which, you know, we always keep uh, six guest taps like IPA, Kohl's or Pilsner, Stout and such, because we recognize that the type of beer we're making is and always will be a niche market of sorts.
1: Right. So so that's a great segue. And how big is too big for you guys? What does the future say? You talked about it being this is a niche market as far as kind of this farmhouse thing. It is kind of, I mean, Portland's Mm -hmm. kind of crazy with how they're adopting and really running with the sour beers. Um, And farmhouse styles, so talk to me a little bit about kind of your growth plan the business strategy
3: you've got moving forward We don't have any further growth plans actually Um, We've stabilized uh, and should cap out at about 1,000 barrels BBL per year, uh, which is very modest size for breweries Mm -hmm. uh, small even and You know our, our goal is to make the best beer possible And I think that the way we make it doesn't necessarily scale particularly well like trying to cram more components into a composition doesn't necessarily add more complexity, it just makes more beer. Um, our goal in purchasing this new facility uh, a few years back and renovating it was to well, invest in our business, uh, which allows us to continue investing in our people better and to focus on quality. Um, so our growth plans are strictly uh, qualitative, like we want to make better beer progressively not more of it. Fantastic.
1: Yeah. So it's interesting because a lot of people are chasing that dollar and and they want to get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And there's even folks here on the coast that have gotten very, very, very large and hit a saturation point where they're like, well, wait a minute. And at some point you sacrifice quality when you grow, at least in my opinion. Well, or
3: quality of life, even. Quality I think of life, is a lot yeah, of you know, absolutely. We're, we're doing work that we're passionate about and love. Uh, uh, Good. What's an extra dollar going to provide for you if you're happy being here doing this, right? Yeah, yeah, totally.
1: And, and that's a perfect point about that quality. But from a quality of beer perspective, I think, again, you can get so big that it's, it's tough on the beer, right? You guys, obviously, I love the fact that you said... Um, from a scalability standpoint, you guys are as big as
3: that you guys can get and yeah. still maintain quality. Sure. I mean, you know, there's a re- very real uh, uh, barrier to to procurement of high-quality ingredients, too. Right. Um, so, yes, the blending components become problematic or trying to cram more uh, components into a blend. But if we want, you know, uh, 2,000 pounds of Baird Family Orchards, uh, you know, peaches, uh, we can get those. Right. If we wanted 20,000 pounds, I'm pretty sure – uh, Trevor, his name's also Trevor. This is me speaking in the third person. He'd probably tell me to F off. Yeah. <laughs> Good, Gary.
0: So the the one thing that I'm really starting to to figure out more about and learn more about in the, the sour segment is it's very time intensive. Um, so kind of talk to us about how you got into – your timelines um, when you first got started, and then how you keep that that timeline going on certain beers. Um, if you are going to reproduce those, how do you know from a time standpoint when to get that started? Um, because obviously, you, it, the beer's telling you when it's going to be ready. It's not uh, not you telling the beer when it's going to be ready.
3: Sure, um, it takes planning and it takes to a fair extent intuition. Um, if we have a a recipe um, or a a base beer that turned out fantastic, we need to already have beer in barrel to be able to repeat that. Otherwise, it's going to be a couple-year lag to be able to repeat that. Uh, So we have to take hunches, and we have to occasionally dump things out. Um, A great example would be a beer we call Ivy, which we made multiple batches of and ended up dumping out because it wasn't quite right, wasn't quite right. Um, We call it Ivy because we released that, coinciding with kind of our one-year anniversary at Mm. this location on ivy and tillamook we finally got it Uh, and thankfully we followed the hunch that this one was going to be right and continued brewing to that recipe such that we won't have a massive leg Um, if we had waited until we had it conditioned in bottle ready to go and hadn't continued brewing that recipe then yeah we're looking at two to two and a half years before we can have that beer uh, ready again Uh, but you asked about the the planning ahead and the the startup and I think for spontaneous production uh, and long barrel aging, that really is, like, the most painful part of the process. Right. Uh, you know, we started out, as with, I think, a lot of smaller brewers, woefully underfunded. Um, and we had to focus a lot of our early efforts on slightly quicker turnaround spontaneous beers, things that we could um, ferment age for less than a year. Right. Knowing full well that those weren't the best beer that we could make, but that they were, we were happy with uh, because we had to pay our bills. Right. And so we kept growing... Yeah. The inventory of barrels that were meant for long-term aging, um, recipes that were uh, better representation of our location, and such that we got to the point a year or two ago that we're now dedicated strictly to recipes that we're excited about that do take a long time. Uh, again, on average, about two years in oak. Right. So I think I think that's the the
0: big thing from the listener standpoint is that. Especially from if they're doing homebrew or anything else, on your normal style style beers, you're going to two weeks to a month maybe uh, for your beer, um, and then with you guys, it's like two years minimum. So it's it's just this huge swing in time uh, with the different styles, and it's really interesting to to see that.
3: Yeah, I, you know. I- Again, there's some crossover between winemakers, I think. Uh, home winemakers would probably mm-hmm. relate more closely to our process right. and timelines than a lot of home brewers.
1: Yeah, we won't venture into my uh, peanut, trying to make Pinot Noir the last couple of years. Uh, <laughs> absolutely. And not knowing how it tastes until the very end. And I'm like, oh, that's this horrible. to set for a year? For what reason?
3: Uh, it's so, the most painful part, isn't it? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Devoting that much time uh, and energy into it and then finally, nope. Yeah, no, I'm a much better beer maker than
1: I am a winemaker. I've determined so too much other stuff. A, I don't have the patience, and B, uh, yeah, there's just that unknown thing at the end of the end of the tunnel. So,
3: well, if you throw a lot of effort into it, again, that that startup part is painful, right? Building right. the inventory, but once you have uh, that pipeline full, you're basically replenishing uh, what you packaged off, and you always have more available. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. Same thing with, I think, home brewers, home winemakers, right, right? That right. first one you're going to be waiting forever for. But if, if you, you continue producing in the wait, <laughs> uh, when that one's uh, done, you'll have another one shortly after.
1: Unless your buddies drain you until about 11 p.m., right? Yeah. So. Yeah, there you are. <laughs> exactly. So I see a lot of boxes here. Talked about uh, how you're distributing. Are you self-distributing?
3: Um, how does that work? And um, where are you distributing to at this point? Yeah, um, so a lot of boxes. We We have... Uh, over 40 pallets of conditioning beer at any given time. So Got these aren't all ready. It's stuff that, uh, you know, because of the bottle conditioning process, can take months or, or even years on occasion. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have to have a massive inventory of just things that are just working. They're way towards ready. Uh, we do distribute a small amount, although about 84%, 85% of our beer is sold direct to consumer out of our tap room. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to say that, well, a lot of other brewers say we're fortunate to have that, but to us it also feels... Uh, not 100 percent great because we want our beer to be as accessible as possible Um as a small brewery that's problematic already but when you have 15 percent of your output to send anywhere else uh, that's really difficult uh, but we do distribute a small amount in oregon washington and california um, basically the regions where most of our customers are visiting us from okay um, if nothing else it's kind of like a, a high five to them uh, right. at least on occasion you might find a keg or some bottles close to home okay um, in oregon we're Self-distributing currently Um, in Washington, our distributor actually got purchased by a larger conglomerate and that allowed us the ability to sever the relationship. So we don't have a current distribution set up, although we are working on a couple options. And in California, we work with uh, Lime Ventures, who are a fantastic distribution company.
1: Fantastic. So collaboration. So you guys are in Tillamook. Um, I think at first blush, somebody would say, look, why Tillamook? I mean, Tillamook doesn't seem like it's a thriving metropolis uh, all year round. Um, And there's already a brew place right across the street here uh, with Pelican that seems to take a lot of business. Um, But why did you guys pick Tillamook and how's that work? But more importantly, what I want to know is about the collaborative nature. Because for brewing to work, as we've seen in Bend and Portland and other areas, um, the brewers tend to cl- glom onto each other and help each other out, recognizing that clustering kind of helps support each other. So talk to me a little bit about the collaboration
3: piece and then why Tillamook. Yeah, well, we we were grateful when uh, Pelican opened their production facility in Tillamook. Uh, we have a good exchange of customers. Uh, mostly we have a lot of customers heading their way um, because a lot of, you know, most wild beer drinkers or acidic beer drinkers Still enjoy other styles right the converse of that is not necessarily true right Uh, so we don't see a migration coming from them but it gives people that visit us another option or destination in our area so a a really synergistic relationship where people just have something else to do that is in the immediate vicinity as far as our location here in tillamook from a business standpoint certainly there were uh, a lot of better options out there uh you know, freight to get ingredients to us, uh, right. you know, getting beer out to to consumers for the amount that we do send out is more expensive and, and more difficult in our location. But based on fermentation trials we did, uh, this area produced beer that we were the most mm-hmm. fond of uh, in the region, uh, which is why we settled where we did.
1: Mm. And that's excellent. So, um, And I love the climate. The climate seems like it's nice and cool, controlled. You don't get the huge spikes that you see in the valley, per se um and i think there's something again kind of farmy i mean obviously farmy about tillamook right Uh, use that play so it kind of works i think so a lot of people heading to pacific city or different places on the coast can stop by here have a awesome beer um so yeah i'm really cool so if there's one beer that you could drink right uh from your tap list for the rest of your life what would it be
3: Oh man! Uh, <laughs> from your tap list, so from our tap list. I mean, uh, well, or I would say your library. How about that? Your library of beers. What's the beer you're drinking? I think the one that more often than not that uh, I consume and uh, most excited about is uh, the Maison. Uh, so. It's a blend of one year old, two year old, and three year old uh, beer uh, barrels, and uh, I think it's just a great ex- uh, expression of the location and why we chose to be here. Hmm. Um, a, a really aromatic Britannomyces complexity. Um, a nice balanced acidity to it, um, just kind of a happy-making beer, and again, really indicative of why we are where we are.
1: So you're going somewhere else in the state where you're going to drink beer? Somewhere
3: else in the state. Uh, shit, man, that's hard. I know. Uh, <laughs> uh, probably Portland, obviously. You've got the concentration of uh, beer and breweries, and um, I know our entire team has been really excited about what Wayfinder's up to up that way. Yeah. Um, it turns out, most brewers are pretty big fans of, like, well-constructed lagers, and those guys are kind of knocking it out of the park with everything they're putting out.
1: It's interesting to swing from, again, hazy IPA, IPA, all that type of stuff to more of the old lagers, which is what, again, kind of pushed everybody to go into microbrewing and kind of get away from that lager-pilsner macro-brew type stuff, yet we're all kind of moving back that way.
3: Sure, but you know, there's a big difference between, you know, like the, right now I'm sipping on a, a ferment uh, uh, pills. Right. Um, there's a big difference between this and you know, say Budweiser or any number of other larger brands, right? Uh, the character is uh, a little bit more, well, it's more character-full. Uh, it's just delicious and, right. and has good flavor versus, uh, I think, the goal for the macro adjunct lagers was an absence of character. Right,
1: right. And it's just the McDonald's of of beer, right? I know what I'm going to get each and every time I'm going. And, sure. And you don't necessarily get that with somebody that's like a craft brewer. Um, there's, not a, there's control, but it's not, uh, again calculated control so oh absolutely um so talk to me a little bit about uh again if you were stuck drinking a macro brew one of the big ones what are you drinking so there's a, there's a lot of talk about some of these macro brews um specifically um with kind of the group that we we hang out and there's a lot of like no no we would never drink macro brew we'd never do it but sometimes we're forced to what are you drinking
3: water lager what lager water oh water yeah yeah no i, I... <laughs> I, really? do, I do make a concerted effort not to drink from the the major brands. Um, I love that answer. It, it's not a qualitative standpoint. It, it's strictly the fact that you know these are companies that spend millions of dollars every year trying to legislate, market, basically make it impossible for breweries like ourselves to exist. Right. Um, I don't fault anybody else for following. Like, if their taste says I really want a Coors Light or something like that, there's no wrong in that. Right. Uh, but. Personally, uh, I can't support somebody else's business who is actively trying to make sure that my business can't exist.
1: Now, and I love that you brought that up. And without even plugging you about, that's what I was looking for. I mean, that's literally kind of the thing that I think most people don't realize is when you drink those macros and you're supporting those businesses, um, they're actively trying to run the craft brew business out of business at this point. So, but good. All right. Um,
3: any plans for brew fest, beer fest coming up for you guys? Are you going to be at anything as far as showing your beers? Yeah, we've got a a seminar during Portland Beer Week coming up soon. Um, It's uh, based on spontaneous fermentation out at Von Ebert um, that we're pretty excited about. Some other great brewers there from uh, some favorites. Um, As far as other beer fests, like, oh, man, uh, that that list is pretty long. But if there's a good one happening, there's a really good chance we'll we'll try and get some beer there.
1: So you're going out to the golf course uh, brew site, or are you actually going to the main brewery there in the Pearl in northwest for Von Ebert? That's a really good question. I actually need to look into oh, which okay. location. Yeah, I know their <laughs> sour facility is over in the golf course area. Yeah, no, and, I mean, uh,
3: we were out there for a, a different event, uh, but but uh, yeah, I actually didn't check which location this particular tasting is at. Yeah, well, I mean,
1: we like Von Eber. We were just there not too what, last week for the Timbers game. Yeah, no, we're pre-funking it out. So. We're
3: stoked on him as well. Uh, you know, Sean has been making amazing beer for yeah. years, and and uh, he now gets to flex his muscles in the facility that he helped design, get the equipment that he wanted, and
1: yeah call cool well I appreciate your time so I want to go uh, cozy up to the bar and have several more of these beers uh, listeners if you get a chance check this place out Tillamook's happening the guard is happening um, crazy crazy good beer crazy good atmosphere um, pretty fresh looking
3: building on the outside nice and clean so um, but I appreciate you having us out and doing an interview no oh, again I, I appreciate the interest thank you so much for taking the time to come visit us absolutely Tim beers
1: cheers Tim beers we're back. The guard brewing. Big thanks to Trevor. Fantastic interview. Love the final comments about uh, macro brews and the chokehold that the macros have on the micros right now. So why support them? Um, again, we'd spend a lot of time talking a little bit about uh, Miller High Life and some of that other stuff. But um, in all seriousness seriousness, I think that (laughs) what happens is um, if you gravitate towards those, um, you're running a local business or a local craft beer business. Right um, out of business. Yeah, right out of business, which is a big deal. So, um, Degard is absolutely amazing. So, their flagship beer um, is a Berliner Weiss and it is unbelievable. um, Recognized across the country, if not the world doing amazing things in Tillamook. Um, And then a little on his backstory is he worked at Pacific City uh, Pelican Brewing as I believe an assistant manager. And then his wife, Lindsay, co-owner, worked at the cheese factory there in Tillamook. And so they are service-based, service-experienced and uh, provide great service and fantastic beer. They do. Yep, so wonderful time uh had a great time there so check them out the guard brewing in tillamook oregon all right buddy well so on that trip down to DeGarde and pelican yep we shot over to pacific city we talked a little bit about it on the last episode
0: <laughs> yes we did
1: and we saw a big huge hill to the right made of sand
0: big old sand dune
1: and i believe we talked about this about six eight months ago i think we did a little deal on sand skiing yeah um it's calling for us baby yeah it's calling so pacific uh pacific city and pelican seem fairly open to it but i'm thinking we're going to be skiing there here pretty quickly and i see within the next year a tim beer sponsored
0: event at that dune i i think you're right um I went online today and ordered some Dr. Dune's sandwaxes. Did uh, you really? Oh, yeah. I went three different types. Uh, I went with their um, Base Butter, their Speed Wax, and uh, one of their other ones. Huh. Um, so... And where are they out of? They're actually out of Florence, Oregon, for, ah, for God's sake. Yeah. So... Um it's really interesting to see a, an Oregon company producing this stuff. They also produce sandboards as well as all the accessories, the bindings, everything else. But it'll be interesting to see how that works on a traditional ski because everything I've read, they've talked about traditional ski bases aren't the best. They still work, but they're not the best. Um, you more you want more like a a countertop, uh material on the base um so we'll see what happens you know Hmm. i've got i've got wax coming we're gonna throw it on our skis we'll see if it works
1: so dug dug a little bit into the sand skiing thing so uh, my idea is go to goodwill get some scrappy ass goodwill skis some rear entry boots that i'm not gonna ruin and wax them up do our thing and let's go So, uh, but looking into this thing, sand skiing was founded in Namibia by a guy, I believe a bunch of Germans, crazy Germans ski in the Namibian desert and the world record for speed on sand for skiing is what? Any ideas? Yeah. It's
0: like 37 miles an hour
1: and 92 kilometers an hour. So about 37, about 40 miles an hour. Ridiculous by a German. So, not quite as fast as snow skiing, right? So, snow skiing, well, no, you're booking I mean, and hauling.
0: And everything I've read on sand skiing, you've got a lot more going on keeping you from going down the hill <laughs> than you do with, with snow. Right. You've got static uh, friction going on. You've got the actual sand... Um, particulate, whether it's really super fine or whether it's big or, or what the case is then you've got heat and then you've got moisture content yep. um, so you, it, it really pays to get the right wax and the right base on a ski to be able to, to get those ski records or the land ski records on that um, for what we're going to do we're just going to throw a slalom course up or try to get somebody to sponsor it. You can do your board or you can do skis. It doesn't matter. Uh, and and we'll see what happens.
1: Yeah, it, it's going to be interesting to see how this thing turns out. I'm planning on just taking a couple turns the first, first few times, just seeing what we can do. But, uh, yeah, if we sponsor an event and hopefully we can get, like, Pelican and others in with us... Uh, We're going slalom and maybe big air. How badass would it be to do big jumps?
0: That'd be sweet. I mean, I've seen some video footage on it. Uh, It's pretty impressive.
1: So I've got a little clip here uh, that we'll play of some sand skiing. And it's different from the last time that we played. So uh, let's give it a whirl. We'll regroup.
2: Did you know located only in Germany is a ski resort that operates with no snow? On this episode we'll unveil Monte Calino. Located in Herschel, Bavaria, Germany Monte Calino is a ski and snowboard resort that operates on sand not snow. Created as a byproduct of Kalinite mining 35 million tons of sand was pulled from the mine which became the slopes for the resort. Kalinite, named after the Kaoling Mountain in Jiangxi Province in China, has been mined in Germany since 1833, but in 1901, Amberger Kallenwerk started mining Kalinite. In the process of separating the mineral, they ended up with piles of quartz sand and the pile began. Year after year of piling up quartz sand resulted in a massive hill of this stuff. By the 1950s so much sand had been piled up, people started experimenting skiing on it. By 1956 a ski club was formed but the fact that this is a sand dune the ski hill operates on months opposite of a normal ski hill. Only in the summer months can one coast down the dune even though they receive snow in winter. Montecalino offers multiple ski runs as well as a terrain park. In 2007 extensive renovations took place, not only did the ski hill get an upgrade but also the trails, geopark, pool and surrounding camping facilities. That's not all one can look forward to when visiting Montecalino. A 656 foot or 200 meter long cable car brings people to the top in boat shaped cars as well as the Alpine Coaster, a roller coaster that rises to the top of the dune then ventures down off to the side. This is a fun ride for the whole family as it buzzes just feet off the ground. If swimming is more of your thing the dune pool at the base of the peak offers plenty of space to swim, there's also a Flintstones like fort for kids to play in. On top of all this, Montecalino is home to the World Sandboarding Championships, which have many of the same events you'd see in the Olympics. Boarders get some serious speed going down this hill, with some clocking in at over 60 miles per hour, or almost 100 kilometers per hour. That place sounds rad, dude.
0: <laughs> yeah, it does. Quartz sand. Well, yeah, and, and it, the beauty of it is you can continue skiing year-round. All year, and I can go 100 kilometers an hour.
1: <laughs> the guy said so. <laughs> no, Don't always believe the advertising. No, he literally said so. No, he so. said it, but... So I'm going to go there, and if I don't go 100 kilometers
0: an hour... Then you just get them for, what is it, uh, false advertising? No, I'm going to protest. I'm going to say, <laughs> look... I'm going to protest. I'm going to make a TIFO. Make me go faster. That's, it
1: has a political theme message, and I'm going to oh, hang it. Oh, shit. There we <laughs> went. We just lost eight more hmm. listeners. No, that was on your comments earlier. <laughs> <laughs> so, mine wasn't pointed at the Timbers Army one.
0: Yeah, I don't care. <laughs> that's the that's beauty of this hmm. podcast. I don't care. So, you know, I think the deal here
1: is we just need to go do it. So.
0: We do. We got to figure out what works, what doesn't, before we start trying to line up sponsorships. And...
1: Well, I don't think I don't even think we're close to that. I think we just have to go well, do it and see if it works.
0: We're so close, it's ridiculous. No way.
1: <laughs> I just need to go put some skis, and because if this thing totally sucks ass, I'm not doing it.
0: Well, I've already read some reviews, and it says it sucks.
1: <laughs> really?
0: Yeah. What the hell
1: are we doing? Well, it's
0: because they didn't have the right wax. Oh. And they didn't have the right base on the skis and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Well, there you go. So, we'll see what happens.
1: Um, I'm not totally into going buying, like, brand new skis. Like, especially for something that could suck. no.
0: You don't need to. Right. So, I think... just just buy a crappy pair of skis, put the wax that I got coming in on there, see what it does go from there you know the other thing i'm thinking about is what if you took like a hard
1: poly like one of those like hard poly coatings put that on the base of your ski and then put the wax on that
0: what do you mean hard polys well they have like hard polyurethane like you put No. why no why one that hard poly is going to heat up yeah and it's going to get sticky as fuck and you're not going to go anywhere. I'm going to put Vaseline on it. That's actually there's there's a website out there that talks about making your own ski wax for sand and Vaseline is one of the bases. Is it really? Yeah. Wow. Um I wouldn't do it though. You know what I would do? Cuz it's going to collect a lot of sand. Ben gay. Oh boy. Seriously? Yeah. Because it's
1: icy and minty. What's that do for your base? Cools it down. <laughs> you think? Yeah, it's menthol.
0: That menthol's <laughs> only good on the skin.
1: No, it might be good on the base. You don't no. know. You don't know. We're going to try it. Oh, We're going to do a blind study.
0: There's a company out of freaking Florence that's done... <laughs> Huge research on this, and Ben Gay was not part of it. We need to get them on the podcast because I want to know if they've done a scientific study
1: of Ben Gay versus no Ben Gay. Oh boy! Do you think they've done
0: it? They may have because they've got they, they talk about uh, nuclear scientist friends and all sorts of stuff. So
1: yeah, um, that's just big talk. Yeah. That's not Ben Gay, dude. Ben Gay is magical. Or bag balm.
0: <laughs> bag balm.
1: Have you put bag balm
0: on the bottom of your skis? <laughs> I, I need you to listen to yourself. <laughs> You're putting this stuff on a base of a ski and then putting it in sand. Yeah. It's going to stick. You're not going to go anywhere. We'll see. It's going to cool down the base. Well, I... have I'll tell you what (laughs) You put that crap On your skis I'll put this Specialized wax on We'll see who goes Down the hill Wax on Wax (laughs) 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 on, Mr. Meong
1: Yeah Full circle baby Right there There it was Alright buddy Well we did a little Sand ski talk So we'll be over At Pacific City uh, In the next week or two Sometime Sometime And uh, Try that out We've got a couple people That want to go with us So that's kind of cool Wow um And let's see What do you think of this Block 15 beer Now that it's opened up Oh boy We got about the same left Yeah it's brutal It's brutal What do you mean brutal Describe brutal
0: it, Well it's not a summer beer We'll just put it that way It's very high octane This is something you drink after a ski trip um, Or after you get out of the hot tub And you're getting ready to go to bed This is definitely not a summer solstice beer by any means
1: well summer solstice was yesterday so we're good
0: um, yeah now that it's <laughs> after freaking midnight uh <laughs> by seven minutes um it's a good beer uh, there's no question about it, it's a good beer but the timing of it could be a little different
1: i think uh i'm gonna get a case of this this is legit shit
0: and just bring it out in the winter time
1: nope summer oh midsummer oh. midsummer heat noon wow. this is a noon beer
0: you're just <laughs> you're just kicking me in the nuts nah
1: no it's, this is an interesting beer like coffee notes vanilla notes uh definitely the cocoa taste on it a heavy alcohol bite on it um <clears throat> this is it's part very of that.
0: smooth when it opens up on the front half but yeah. that back half has got the alcohol bite and and that's brutal yeah no it's it's good but... it, it's a good beer though
1: all right, buddy. Well, I don't think I have anything else for the good of the order. Um, we have Montreal Timbers on Wednesday and Dallas Timbers at home uh, this coming weekend.
0: On the 28th.
1: 28th. Yep. Um, my little brother's coming to town. Uh-oh. So he's bringing some beers. He's driving from Sun Valley, <laughs> Idaho. He's bringing some beers from Sun Valley. That could be bad. Yeah, he, uh, he uh, texted me, and I'm like, uh, hey, what are you? What are you doing? He's like, I'm at a brewery. And I'm like, well, pick me up some beers. We'll put them on the podcast. So, Is this Aaron? Yes, this is Aaron. Oh, so, God. We have a hazy IPA coming from, I believe, Sun Valley Brewing. Yeah. And a coffee stout coming from them as well.
0: So is he going to sit on, on a podcast? Um, or is he going to be gone by then? He's
1: he's in midweek, so we may need to uh, regroup midweek. So.
0: He, he's one of those flashy travel guys, isn't he?
1: He's flashy traveler.
0: <laughs> but you know what? He's my little brother.
1: So um, So I think that's all we got going. Yeah, we may have to do a midweek podcast type thing with him on. Or maybe I'll interview him um, and splice that bad boy in. So That'd
0: be sweet. Yeah. Yeah. We'll
1: have to go see how that goes. All right, buddy. Well, let's get out of here. It's 12.09. <laughs> We've been up a long time. It's now Sunday, kids. Yeah, what the hell? Yeah. I gotta get up and make some French toast. Ooh. So, alright, buddy. Well, let's get out of here. Tim Beers.
0: Tim Beers.